Well, we'll transition now into, into, the, book, into the book of Acts. And uh, I'm really glad to be able to, to be with you guys. You know, I speak in a lot of different churches, and I've got to say that you are a good-looking bunch. You look, you look well put together. You look like you're here for church. But without, you know, without actually raising your hands, I won't, I won't make you do this in front of all of your, your fellow congregants, but for how many of you uh, good-looking, well-put-together people, if we wound the clock back about 40 minutes, for how many of you was the scene at home uh, less than put together and not chaotic? And uh, for how many of you, you know, was there perhaps a smidgen of conflict that got you into the right mood to come to church this morning? And most of you with children really know what I'm talking about. Uh, we live in this world, there's, there's conflict. Uh, conflict happens in the world. And, and sometimes the, the conflict uh, is silly. Sometimes conflict is, you know, maybe it was Friday movie night at home, and of the 5,000 possible options on Netflix, you couldn't pick one that everybody could agree with. Those of us from my age demographic, we used to have that conflict in public at the video store. <laughs> so we, we get that. Sometimes conflict is silly. Sometimes conflict uh, goes online. I have one family member who feels that it is his slash her. We won't want to, in case this is being recorded, right? So this individual's uh, mission in life seems to be to correct everybody whose opinion is different to that person's, uh, and so many of us have quietly just sort of, I learned about this unfriend feature. I've only been on Facebook since the pandemic, but it's a cool feature to know about, so that was handy. But anyway, <laughs> they can just rant away. I don't need to be a, be a participant. Sometimes the conflict can get pretty serious, though. We're having that take place in Ukraine right now. And so conflict and adversity happens, and in a world of infinite ideas, and a world of infinite opinions, a world of infinite ways of seeing things, conflict and adversity is inevitable. It's, it's going to happen. It's going to happen. And what we're looking at here today, we're in the book of Acts, and what we have is the first of many conflict passages where the early church encountered conflict and adversity for holding on to its beliefs and, percep and perceptions. And so we're going to turn here, we're in Acts chapter 4, and we, we want to take a look at this. And, and when, Jesus, um, when Jesus commissioned his, his followers after he ascended into heaven, he commissioned them and said, look, you guys are going to go out and carry on the work that I initiated, the work that I started. And so you, you've kind of walked through this over the past little while, you've walked through that commissioning episode, you walked through that whole... Um, waiting, in, waiting in Jerusalem for the power to come upon you, and then the power goes out, and then Peter gives this, this great message. And, and then we, we walked through here uh, last week. Uh, Reg walked through this, uh, Peter and John walking into the temple and, and going past this person who was lame. And as he said, you know, they, they probably walked by this person multiple times, but the Spirit just came upon them, and at that moment, they drew the attention to, to this lame person. He says, can I, 
you know, give me some money. They said, we don't have money, but in the name of Jesus, walk. And this person who hadn't walked, as the text tells us, in 40 years, which as a professional exegete and someone of my age, I think means a very young man. But anyway, uh, he hadn't walked for, for 40 years, and all of a sudden he's up and running about, happy and, and jumping around. Uh, and as a consequence of that, many people listen to the message that Peter and, and John are sharing about Jesus, and many believe. And then the religious authorities come in and get involved. So there's a threat here to the established way of seeing things. And as a consequence, there, there's some conflict and some adversity. And so they arrest Peter and John, put them in jail, and that's where our story picks up here this morning. So if you want to go, we're going to start uh, in Acts chapter 4 and starting in, in verse 5. So let me just read this. Now, again, being someone still in their young 40s, um, kind of wish I had, I just started to need these dollar store reading glasses that I didn't bring. But anyway, perhaps Peter and John will come by and help me out. But anyway, let me, let me read this to you. So, so the next day, so the, Peter and John have had, the, had a night in the clink there. So the next day, their rulers, elders, and scribes assembled in, in Jerusalem with Annas the high priest, Caiaphas, John, Alexander, all who were of the high priestly family. Now, when they, made, when they had made the prisoners stand in their midst, they inquired, by what power or by what name did you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers of the people and elders, if we're questioned today because of a good deed done to someone who was sick and are asked how this man has been healed, let it be known to you and to all the people of Israel that this man is standing before you in good health, or we're going to come back to that one, flag it, this man has come back to you in good health. Um, um, actually, we're going to come back to the healed one before then. Um, of Jesus standing before you in good health by the name of Jesus Christ of Naz- Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders. It has become the cornerstone. There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among mortals by which we must be saved. Now, two bits of information. One is, that's the first third of the passage we're studying this morning. Um, Second is, we'll take longer on the first third than the next two thirds will go faster. So we're going to take a look at this, but for the sake of lunch, we're not going to look at like everything. We're going to, we're going to just pick and choose a little bit. If you want to grow deeper, I know a college I can recommend. All right? So the first thing, though, here that we want to, uh, as we walk through this, is we want to point out, just to kind of see where we're going here in this first 12 verses that we're going to look at together, is, is the idea that the disciples courted adversity through their uncompromising, exclusivist commitment to Jesus. So we're going to unpack this a little bit, but this is fundamental not only to understanding this text, but to understanding what it means to be a faithful follower of Jesus to this day. 
So we're gonna we're just gonna take a we're gonna highlight a few things. So the first thing here, um, I want to go back up here. So we're gonna skip all the stuff about Annas and Caiaphas and all that. You can come take that in class. We're gonna skip down to verse eight. Uh, then, then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said. Peter filled with the Holy Spirit said, and then he says stuff. Now this is something that Luke does often. Luke connects the activity, the filling of the Holy Spirit with speech. It happens all the time. It happened way back starting in the Gospel of Luke, right in the first chapter. Right in the first chapter, the Holy Spirit comes upon Elizabeth and she speaks. Zechariah and he speaks. Simeon and he speaks. It goes on throughout here. It, the, the Holy Spirit came upon the disciples and they spoke and, all these, and people heard all of the, what they were saying in their own languages. They, the Holy Spirit come, will come upon Stephen, who's going to be the first martyr, and speak. It's going to come upon Paul and speak. There's this connection that Luke makes and wants to draw our attention to that one of the Holy Spirit's functions is to inspire our speech. And when, and when the speaking happens, what comes out of the mouth is, is prophetic. What comes out of the mouth is, becomes what God is saying. So when Zechariah makes a declaration, it isn't Zechariah saying it, it is God saying it. It's Simeon saying it. And here it's Peter saying it. So there's this connection between, between speaking and the Holy Spirit's uh, activity. And so the disciples are prophetically speaking when they speak. And this becomes, this is even a promise that Jesus gives to his disciples in Luke chapter 12. He says, look, when you're in a position of adversity, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and give you speech, will give you something to say. This is the expectation. The earliest followers of Jesus went out and were boldly able to share their faith because they they believed that behind what they were saying was the power of God to help them. So that's the first thing we, we want to look at. And we're going to see that it's that actual power of speech that what the disciples come up against, that's the very thing that the religious authorities want to stop. They're going to put a stop to the power of speech about Jesus, which is in fact the Holy Spirit speaking. So that's, that's the, one, the one little nugget. The next little nugget here we want to look at, next verse, is verse 9. So here's Peter saying, look, you're asking what's happened here, what we've done for, the, what we've done for this, this man who was sick, and are asked how this man has been. Okay, so now, depending on your translation, we're going to have some different words. Some might say how this man has been healed or cured. But here's a, here's a little nugget for you. The word is saved. It's the exact same word that shows up in verse 12. There's no other name by which one may be saved. And this tells us something important as well about the concept of salvation in the Gospels. This is true in Matthew and Mark and Luke and John. Salvation is more than just getting your soul ready for the next world. Salvation, as Jesus used it, as the gospel writers used it, was always more about wholeness. It was a whole 
life thing. The whole life thing. And that's why making one whole includes not simply the spiritual dimension, but the physical dimension and the social dimension as well. And we see that throughout Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. Saved is a bigger picture item. It has otherworldly pieces, but it also has this worldly pieces too. And so those are two, two little nuggets that we, uh, that we want to, to, to focus on here. And, uh, and, and that brings us here to the, to the last point here when we're thinking about s- salvation. Uh, and that comes again in, in verse 12, where Peter's giant crescendo of his speech is this. There is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among mortals by which we must be saved. Now the must there is, is a little Greek word that shows up frequently in the New Testament. It's a little three-letter word, they, and it has to do with God's divine sovereign will. There is no other name by which one must which we can say also can, it is not possible, this is the net, it is necessary that there is no other name by which one must be saved. Now we live in 21st century Canada, and we pride ourselves on being nice. We, we think we're nice, and we tell the rest of the world we're nice. I don't know how nice that is, but anyway. Uh, we, we're nice, and we're tolerant, and, and we're, we're accepting, and we're loving of one another. That's how we want to see our, ourselves. So when we come upon a text like this, it can't help but grate on us a little bit. Because our, our broader social values are to be accepting of everybody. And here's a statement that Jesus makes here or Peter makes about Jesus here, John makes in John 14, 6, Jesus is the way, the truth, and life. He's the only way to the Father. We, we come here and we get this exclusivist sort of statement. And by, by virtue of being good Canadians, when we are thinking about being exclusive, that just seems to rub us the wrong way. We've been conditioned to rub it, have it rub us the wrong way. But it is an essential part of the message of Jesus. We live in this pluralistic world, but that's not different to the world that Peter and John inhabited. Peter and John lived in a pluralistic world. In Peter and John's world, it was perfectly acceptable to have many gods. You could bring your gods in. Are you coming in from Egypt? Sure, bring them on in. For Peter and John, it was... There was every opportunity to just add Jesus to the list of other gods in the Roman world. And this is one of the things that we have to wrestle with and struggle with as followers of Jesus, is that Jesus really is saying, I'm I'm exclusive. And this is one of the things that, that we struggle with. We struggle with that exclusivity. Because isn't Jesus the loving one? Isn't his arms wide? And this is one of the misconceptions that we have. 
Because Jesus absolutely widened the doorway. He made it, he made it so that everybody can come in. But he narrowed the path. The door was wide, but the path was narrow. And it required recognizing who Jesus is. And so that's an uncomfortable reality, but it's going to come out in the rest of the passage. That's a reality that the earliest followers of Jesus had to accept. And far from widening things, here they're dealing with the Jewish people in Rome who were already really super narrow because there was only one God and they refused to accept these other Roman ones. And now they're narrowing it further and saying, and that one God can really only be known by Jesus. It's gotten really narrow. The doorway is wide, but the path is, is narrow. And, and that's a reality. And, and as we see, we'll see, I mean, that's, that's just an undercurrent of biblical Christianity. And it's uncomfortable because it sounds so arrogant to say, you know, I'm right about something, or I have something that's really exclusive. And that's really hard to say, unless, unless it's actually true. Unless Jesus really is who Jesus really says he is, unless Jesus really is, as Peter said in the previous sermon, the author of life. If he is truly the author of life, then we need to take that, take that seriously. So let's, let's hold on to that as we continue here through, through the passage. Uh, we'll go to the next section here, 413 to 22. So now when, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and realized that they were uneducated and ordinary men, literally these were, uh, these were ungrammared, and uh, uh, the words here kind of, Amusing, a grammatoi idiotai. They were idiotai. So anyway, you can do with that what you want. But they were, they were, uh, they were unlearned. They weren't professional speakers, and uh, not shouldn't shouldn't be able to be communicating in an intelligent way. So they're they're shocked by this. They were amazed and recognized them as companions of Jesus. Uh, when they saw the man who had been cured standing be- beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. So they ordered them to leave the council while they discussed the matter with one another. And they said, what will we do with them? For it's obvious to all who live in Jerusalem that a notable sign has been done through them. We can't deny it. But to keep it from spreading further among the people, let us warn them. Here comes the speech. Let's warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name. So they called them and ordered them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them, whether it's right in God's sight to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot keep from speaking about what we have seen and heard. And after threatening them again, they let them go, finding no way to punish them because of the people, for all of them were praising God for what had happened. For the man on whom this sign of healing had been performed was a man of 40 years old, a very young man. So, we, we, we want to take a look here at, um, in, this, in this conflict passage here, and note that, that here and elsewhere, the way that the disciples responded to conflict was always with respectful noncompliance. 
They couldn't do what they were being told to do. They couldn't cut out the Spirit of God proclaiming. But how they didn't do it was respectful. And that shows up throughout the entire scriptures. So just looking here at verse 418, they ordered them not to speak or to teach in the name of Jesus. The disciples here, um, the way that they responded or what they responded to was, was to an adversity that was really an attempt to silence the commitment to Jesus. This is, this is what they were responding to. All right, what they were not responding to uh, was the, the public disagreement of a whole bunch of their ideologies. The disciples were not non-compliant and making a big public declaration that the rest of the world didn't look like them. They had one job to do, and that was to tell the story of Jesus, and that was the job that was being taken away. And to that, they had to say respectfully, uh, we can't comply. But they were not focused on making the rest of the world look like them. They were focused internally on how do we as a community of believers shape ourselves under the lordship of Jesus. And that's what comes unpacked in in the rest of the passage. And this is a strategy that we see throughout the entire New Testament. So one of the passages that gets quoted pretty much every time we have an election, and I think is one of the passages that is not read carefully and so is misunderstood, is is 1 Timothy chapter 2, uh, 1 to to 4 here. So as Paul writing here says, you know, I urge then, first of all, that petitions, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and all those in authority, that we may live peaceable and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. This is good and pleases God our Savior who wants all people to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. The prayer that Paul says when they're praying for the leaders isn't that there was no, there was no expectation, hey, may the Caesars really rule, may the emperor have good Christian values in the policy, maybe he'll burn a few less people. Amen? That wasn't the prayer. The prayer was about the community. The prayer was, Lord, we pray that we may conduct ourselves in a peaceable and godly way. Let them kind of give us the space it takes to leave us alone. And the strategy was for transforming the world not to get out there and make everybody look like them. The strategy was, and we're praying because God wants everyone to be saved, that they too will come under the submitted lordship of Jesus Christ. And when they're under the submitted lordship of Jesus Christ, then they too will be part of the community that wants to live peaceably and live out the way of Jesus. That's the strategy. The strategy is to transform the world by bringing the world under voluntary submission to Christ. And somewhere along the way, at least my one family member perhaps has forgotten that. But I've unfollowed that person, so I don't know. Maybe, maybe they've changed their mind. Um, so we want, we want that. So, but all of that flows also under um, this exclusivist claim. So, so here's the way. So they respond 
They respond respectfully. First of all, they respond just to this threat to what they're supposed to do, because the strategy is about bringing people under the lordship of Jesus. And if you can't tell anybody about the lordship of Jesus, then you can't really do the job you're told to do. Respectfully, we can't do that. Uh, The second thing we see here in the passage is that the disciples responded to adversity by allowing the works of God to speak for themselves. So we see here in the passage that when, when they, when the religious leaders saw the man who had been healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. He was, he was lame and he's walking. I mean, what are you going to do? You know, here he is. I can't really say too much about that. Uh, they said, it's obvious to all who live in Jerusalem that a notable sign has been done through them. <laughs> we can't deny it. So they, they were content to let God be God. They didn't feel the need to be God on God's behalf. So they they let that go. But the other thing that they did is that they responded to adversity with reason and respect, not a demand for rights. So they reasonably said, look, we got to follow what God says, which is common ground. They're talking to religious leaders. You got to follow what God says. We got to follow what God says. Hey, if you judge. You judge whether or not that's a good rationale. Uh, but that's, that's the reason why we have to respectfully decline the limitations that you're putting on us. And so they, rep- they replied there with this, this reason and respect. They didn't just give in to it, but neither did they, neither did they go on and uh, and, and assert their own, their own rights and their ways of, of trying to make the world fit the way that they thought the world should fit. Because the only way that they could see the world fitting the way they thought it should fit is if everybody comes voluntarily under the lordship of Jesus Christ. So that's the plan. And they're executing on that plan. So the last, the last section here. And then you guys can all argue about where we're going to eat for lunch and it'll be a big conflict unless you sorted that out ahead of time. All right, so the last, the last little bit here, uh, verses 37, or 23 to, to 37. So after they were released, they went to, now we're going to come back to this, they went to various ways of translating this, I'm going to say their own, and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them, And when they heard it, they raised their voices together to God and said, Sovereign, we're going to come back to this one too, Sovereign Lord, who made the heavens and the earth, the sea and everything in them, it is you who said by the Holy Spirit through our ancestor David, your servant, why did the Gentiles rage and the peoples imagine vain things? The kings of the earth took uh, took their stand and the rulers have gathered together against the Lord and against his Messiah, For in this city, in fact, both Herod and Pontius Pilate and the Gentiles, with the peoples of Israel, gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, to do whatever your hand and your plan had determined ahead of hand to take place. And now, Lord, look at their threats and grant your servants to speak your word with all boldness. Will you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders and are performed through the name of your holy servant Jesus. When they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit 
and they spoke the word of God with boldness. Now the whole group of all those who believed were of one heart and one soul, and no one claimed any private ownership of any possessions, or, but everything they owned was held in common. With great power, the apostles gave their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as owned lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold. They laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each at each had a need. And then there was a Levite, a, uh, a native of Cyprus, Joseph, to whom the apostles gave the name Barnabas, who's going to come up a little bit later there in the story. Uh, he sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. All right, so that's a, a, big, a big chunk of text, but um, we want to go there. So we're going to go back here just, again, we're just going to pick and choose. could spend a lot of time on this. Maybe I'll get inspired and have inspired speech. I'll take away the problem about where to go for lunch. So, no, I won't do that. Okay. All right, verse 23 to 24. After they were released to their own. Literally, it says their own. Now, depending um, on your, your translations, you might see they went to their friends or to other believers or something like that. But literally, it says they went to their own. And this is a really important part, and it really falls together with everything that's, that's happened. Um, because the, the reality here is if Jesus really is this ex- narrow, exclusive way, what ends up happening is, and again, uncomfortable in Canada, but, but it does create something like an us and something like a them. Now, that can go really bad really fast. but it has to be acknowledged as a reality because it underpins the entire New Testament and the history of Christianity. And again, it can go bad really fast. Some of that history went really bad. But that doesn't take away from the truth that if Jesus is the author of life, as Peter said, if Jesus is God's manifestation on earth, the sole creator, then that exclusivity is, is owed him. And by doing that, that means those who submit themselves to that lordship of Jesus are created as a people. And so here is, here is a people. And this is a thing that we've, we've missed about salvation because, you know, through no fault of our own maybe, but we we've, we've sometimes think about what did Jesus do? He came to save me. Well, sort of. Jesus actually came to restore his good creation that he created in the, from, the, from the beginning and make, make it right again. Jesus came and to, to create a people through which he could manifest himself. So he called out a people, Israel, and created this people uh, who would bear witness so that through Abraham's seed, all the peoples of the world, earth could come to know them. And, and in through that people... He came himself, God came himself and took on flesh and dwelt among us and and then he called and created a people. Jesus came to create a people. So he came in one sense. Now my wife joined me today. Normally I can get away with this because she's not here, but anyway, I'll just take the flack later. But anyway, conflict. No, uh, (laughs) 
you know, because she's from northern Ontario. Now, she doesn't say this, all right, but in northern Ontario, they have this expression. So Jesus came to, not so much to save you as to save yous. Yous guys. She's never said that to me, but, you know, it's in the region. So anyway, yous guys. There is this, there's this sense in which Jesus came to make a people that would bear witness to his name, that would call other peoples and add to it. That, that's the plan. That's the plan. And this could be a whole long talk, so we're not going to do it. But I'm just going to throw out to you one thing to meditate upon as you contemplate that reality, and that's the Lord's Prayer. Because the Lord's Prayer, the pronouns, aren't you. It's our. The Lord's Prayer is meant to be prayed together as people, as an us. And, and that's an essential part of, of, of understanding that. So, all right, so that's the one, that's the one reality we want to grasp is, is, is that there's a their own. And then facing adversity, the first things that, that Peter and John did is went to their group, their people. The second thing here we want to reinforce, verse 24, they, they raised their voice together and said, now here the translations will say, Lord or Sovereign Lord or something like that. This is not the word for Lord that we find throughout most of the rest of the New Testament. That word, kurios, for Yahweh. Uh, this is the word, despotes, where we get the word despot from. This is the, they, they ramped it up because this is a slave master Lord. So when the disciples faced adversity, they went back, they got together with their own, and the first thing they did is they recommitted and reconfigured themselves under the absolute sovereignty of the Lord, Jesus, the Lord God. And they had a concept of who they were in relation. And there's a sense, Jesus says, you know, I call you my friends, but he also says he's our master. And there are, in contemporary, in recent days, we've really leaned toward Jesus is my BFF, when in fact Jesus is our Lord and Master. He's a good and loving Master, but He's not our BFF. He is our true and sovereign Master. And so the first thing in, in facing sovereignty that the disciples did is they got, went back and they, they recognized and reaffirmed as a community the mastery of God. All right, so we're just about done. We're just about done. But we'll read one more little bit here. So, so I won't read the whole thing. But here, here um, another thing that the, that the disciples did after affirming the mastery of God is that they... Um, that they reaffirmed kind of the, the, the sovereignty, but they also recognized and expanded the threat, the threat that was facing them. So they took a psalm, Psalm chapter 2, and they said, okay, here we are, we're facing religious persecution, we're facing persecution from, the, from these religious authorities. And then they read this whole psalm about why the Gentiles rage and the people imagine vain things. And then they talk about how Herod, and Pontius Pilate, and all the Gentiles, and all the people of Israel are against you, God. So they took the threat and the adversity they were facing, 
from a fairly small group of local religious leaders, and they expanded it and said, really, in the big picture, who is against us is almost everyone. Most of Israel, the Gentiles, and all the religious, uh, the religious leaders. And so they do that. So the disciples acknowledged the, the fuller scope that threatened their own. And then in response to it, they prayed for boldness to serve their sovereign Lord in the midst. In other words, they didn't pray, look, the world is really kind of against us, take us out of the world. They prayed, give us the boldness to do the mission of bringing this world under the voluntary submission to your Lordship, Jesus. And then the last part here, we're just going to skip down here um, to, to verse 432. Now the whole group of those who believed were of one heart and soul. No one claimed private ownership or possessions, but everything they owned was held in common. Here the disciples reinforced the unity of the group and gave a practical demonstration of, of what their own looks like amid a hostile world. So here, the sovereignty of God, the world's hostile. What does that look like for us as a community of believers under that lordship of Jesus? Well, what it looked like is they got on the same page. They were all on the same page. They were united under the sovereignty of, of God. But then they said that they actually shared their material goods. Now, I, I listened to the sermons in the series here, and I know Maureen had preached on Thanksgiving and, and made the, the right point. This is, this is not some type of structured communism or socialism. In fact, that flips it. That's, that's exactly the opposite of, of what this is, because this isn't some top-down structure that you can force on people that probably doesn't work. At least we haven't seen it work super well. This is something where the text says the grace of God came upon them. And because they were their own, because they had a shared commitment under that sovereignty of Jesus, when they saw that people needed something, they took pains to make sure that they were all okay because they wanted to, they were us. And that us, it became important to, to protect it and preserve it. And so this is this great picture of the early church in full submission. And that's where we could end it, and I'm just, I am just about to end it, but just to tee up next week's sermon for you, all right? The idyllic church, and we all say, oh, if we could only get back to the early church, the, Acts, the early Acts church. Well, if you've read the Bible, if you read the New Testament, you'll get that the early church actually didn't have it all going on, including the Acts church, because the Acts 2 and 4 church is going to be followed by the Acts 5 and 6 church. So... The next verses are going to be where, oh, maybe they didn't get it all together. And, uh, and so that's an important thing for us to remember. Because we are called to be a community submitted under the lordship of Jesus. And we are called under that to do the best that we can in acting that way. But one of the reasons why we have the, the Lord's Prayer is that little line in there about forgiving one another. Because, you know, the other people in the community are actually people just like you. They're probably going to misstep. They're probably going to get it wrong. So keeping short accounts, finding ways of forgiving, recognizing that, okay, we're not all having it all together, that's an essential part of 
being that community that Jesus has called us to be, his, his bride. So the New Testament has lots of failures reported in it, of churches failing. But even at churches like the Corinthian church, even those churches, still, Paul's emphasis isn't on focusing on these are the things he did wrong. He does a quick correction, but then he says, build up, build up, build up. That's what we're called to do as the church. So let me give you three takeaways as we, as we conclude. The first is that if we are submitted to Jesus, we cannot compromise on our exclusivist claims about Jesus. If Jesus really is who Jesus is claimed to be, the manifestation of God in the flesh, the one God, the true creator God of this world that is doing the job of bringing the world back into the good order that he created it to be. If that's really a true story, and that's the story that we as followers of Jesus commit ourselves to, to believing, then we can't say, oh yeah, but it's okay if, you know, you do you. Oh, I hate that word. Anyway, that phrase. You, it doesn't work. Because as soon as we do that, we, we diminish who Jesus is. And the followers of Jesus were ready to die rather than to compromise on that claim. And that's what the next couple hundred years after the New Testament involved them doing. They could have just said, yeah, we'll worship Jesus and the emperor. But they said, we're not going to do that. And they actually went to death rather than compromise in that way. The second takeaway is that if we're submitted to Jesus, we must respond to adversity in the way of Jesus with reason and respect and the power of the Holy Spirit. We don't need to reshape the world into what we think it should be. But neither can we give up on doing what we're called to do in proclaiming Jesus. And the third piece, if we're submitted to Jesus, then we must prioritize unifying the people of Jesus, our own, caring spiritually and practically, building up and not participating in in the worldly efforts to tear down. There's enough of that out there. Our job in here is, yeah, we're going to mess up. We're going to step on each other's toes. We need to build up. We need to build up, reaffirm our sovereignty in the name of Jesus. So my prayer for you is that as a, as a community, this is going to be what, what you do. And I'm going to pray for you, and then I'll call Pastor Reg up. So, Lord, I just thank you for this opportunity to, to be here and to dig into your word. I pray that as, as we've heard your word, that your spirit will dwell mightily among us and that we will, through your word, be shaped into being the people, the bride that you have called us to be. In Jesus' name, we pray.